You're listening to the Degrees of Freedom podcast, conversations about higher education in the 21st century between students and teachers. Produced at the University of Groningen. Welcome to the fourth episode of Degrees of Freedom. It's a special episode today for a number of reasons. We've got a, a lot of new things in this episode. I'm still Tasso Sarampalis, but today with me, I have a new co-host and he is uh, Colum of Furhan. And I think I've said that correctly, Colum. You, you've nailed it, yeah. Very good. Yeah, yeah. I'm, uh, I'm happy to join the project. Um, it's something that Tasso and I have been talking about for the last months to join. Uh, I'm really excited to be part of it for the next few months as I finish my degree. Uh, I'm a third year student here at the Faculty of Behavioral Sciences in the psychology degree. And yeah, I think there's going to be an episode where I will get a bit more airtime and I can introduce myself properly. But I think today's episode is all about the guests that we have with us today. Uh, we are recording this on Friday, April 1st, in um, a week before the upcoming education festival at the University of Groningen. And the theme of this year's education festival is making, uh, improving quality, uh, improving ed education quality through making connections. And so I think that's a relevant introduction to our podcast uh, from our faculty of behavioral sciences. We have four nominees for what is the new award of best practice, formerly known as the teacher of the year award. And uh, they're sitting here to my left and in front of me, we have uh, Mark Neuenstein from the uh, department of psychology and Michelle de Jong from the department of teacher education. And so, yeah, I think we would just like to give you guys the opportunity to talk a bit about who you are, what kind of courses you're teaching. Perhaps we can start with you, Michelle. Thank you. Yes. Well, I'll try and uh, tell something about my, myself and, uh, and my department, because that's the most important uh, thing of all of it. Um, I'm a teacher of teaching methodology in, in the uh, department of, of teacher education and my specialty is Spanish. So in the first place, I'm teaching uh, students who have done a master or a bachelor, that depends a bit, uh, and then go to the other department. So uh, my students are coming from this uh, department. We're recording this in the Faculty of Art, and that's a very known territory for me. Uh, I studied here. I did a, a, a master of Spanish literature and, uh, and linguistics, and uh, then then I uh, went into teaching in a, in a secondary school. After that, or during that, I must say, um, I was working as a, as a teacher in the second degree um, teacher education. And later on, I was uh, involved in, in uh, starting up the startup of the um, educational master. Master of education is another name for it. So that was in two, 2003 when the bachelor master system uh, went into practice and uh, we were able to, uh, to start up this, um, this um, sp uh, Spanish teacher education within the bigger organization of the master of education. And I am um, still involved here because it's very important talking about uh, making connections. It's very important for us to have the connection between the faculties that um, deliver the students to the Master of Education 
and the let's say the, the home faculties. For me, it's arts, but it, it's always uh, possible to to be working with other students from, from other uh, other faculties. It's quite complicated, and con- making connection is very important. Uh, also at uh, at the level of uh, of content, but I get into that later on. I think. Mark, would you like to pick up the ball and tell us about what kind of courses you've been teaching? Um, your role as a teacher here at the uh, Faculty of Behavioral Sciences. Um, yeah, so my name is Mark Nieuwenstein, and uh, I guess my story would start with saying that I've been appointed here in Groningen as an assistant professor since 2008, and this was actually the year that they, uh, I think, they started the English language bachelor program. So I was actually hired in the context of them searching for new teachers. And so since I started in 2008, uh, one of the courses I've taught all these years is a course called Biopsychology, Biological Psychology, which is a course taken by the uh, first year students in the uh, Psychology Bachelor in the English Language Program. And so, yeah, I, I guess I have a lot of experience in teaching this course. And over the many years of teaching the course, the course has evolved. My knowledge has grown uh, as a result of studying the book chapter more and more thoroughly, looking up more and more additional literature. And especially, I think, last year with the uh, students asking so many questions and so many questions that I haven't had before, uh, again, forcing me to expand on my knowledge again. And uh, so I I really appreciate the contribution, actually, that the students made to my course last year because uh, because of them being so active in asking questions, I, I really learned a lot myself. Well, let me let me take over from here, Mark. First of all, welcome both of you and say one more time, congratulations for winning this award this year. Uh, Mark, I find it interesting that you say that um, your, the, your practice teaching biopsychology in particular has changed a lot in the 13, 14 years that you've been teaching it in the program, uh, partly because of your um, changes in understanding of the material or the way that you engage with the material but also partly because of the feedback that you receive from students and um, their requests, their comments and their interaction during the course. Can you say something, uh, can you say a little bit more about how, for example, student evaluations have have steered the way that you uh, you think about this course in the last 14 years? Um well, I, I guess it's really about developing more knowledge. So this biopsychology course is an introduction to the field of biopsychology. And basically the course covers so many different subjects, right? And if you're a researcher, you tend to be specialized in one subject. And so you know a lot about that. But uh, having kind of in-depth knowledge about all of the different subjects that you cover in this course, I think it basically starts with reading the book chapter and being able to explain what is in the book chapter as well as you can. But eventually you'll end up um, seeking more and more information about these chapters and the uh, subjects that are covered. And I guess that is a kind of well experience and, and learning experience uh, for a teacher, uh, him or herself. And so I think that is part of why I've become more and more comfortable in teaching the course, knowing more and more about the subjects that I'm teaching about, not just the ones that I had uh, experience in research myself with. Um, and I guess what made last year's course especially uh, well special is the fact that uh, it was taught online. So it was completely online with the lectures being streamed through Blackboard Collaborate. And so I had the impression, and I, well, I can say for sure, that uh, I've never had so many questions from students uh, as I had last year, where I really had the impression that students through the Blackboard Collaborate chat felt much more freedom and liberty in speaking their mind and asking their questions. 
than they would usually do in a big lecture hall involving, well, maybe 300 students being present there. And so actually, ironically, we've been having these messages uh, this week, I think, about so uh, we shouldn't be streaming our lectures because it means that students will not attend the lectures in person as much anymore. And actually, my experience has been that this online way of teaching is actually great because I've never had so much interaction with my students as I had last year doing the course online. I'd like to pick up this topic in a bit when we talk uh, more about what we imagine the future of higher education to be. But I wanted to return to Michelle and see uh, how her experiences, you teach Spanish and you teach uh, more specifically teachers of Spanish, how to be teachers of Spanish. So it's a bit of a, a meta teaching in, yes. a, in a sense. How was your experience in the last couple of years and last year in particular? Well, um, for us, it's more difficult because teaching how to teach has to do with behavior. It's not only learning and gathering knowledge, but it's learning to, to do things. And our students had some disadvantages because they are doing practices in uh, secondary schools, quite, uh, quite intensive courses. And uh, they also had to offer this online instead of learning. And um, well, they did learn, of course, but instead of learning a lot of their um, example teachers and then practicing themselves, they had to organize online class uh, rooms with young children. And then it's quite difficult to activate them. I mean, you can learn to do that, but uh, sometimes pupils try to hide or they put out the camera or they don't want to be heard. Uh, that's an extra challenge. So we are quite happy that we are able to uh, be able to get back to, to physical teaching and be with them in the room and see behavior and react on that. So that's for our students very important and for us also as teachers of, of, of future teachers. So you mentioned there, uh, you were talking about, yeah, from a teacher's perspective, it's making it a lot easier. Um, something that I've seen, and Mark can also probably relate uh, within the psychology department, is that it's been a bit mixed reaction towards this move, once again, off online teaching. How has the students in your courses, in your uh, department reacted? Are they excited about returning to in-person teaching? Yes, they are. They are. And that's because we always have this mix of theoretical classes, but they are not that theoretical. In our classes, they also practice what they later on have to practice in schools. And at the same time, they are in the school and that's uh, um, some input that's very valuable. So they're quite happy to be able to return to the real class. Well, I, I was going to reserve this for a little bit later in the podcast, but you've jumped right into this topic and I'm just going to run with it a little bit. Um, my experience, Mark, uh, I, I taught largely online last year, like you. We had, I think, similar cohorts, 300-ish students in our lecture courses, very different to what Michelle teaches. She tells me 10 12, how many people in your courses usually? Well, that depends. When we have all the mother languages together, and we do have them together, it's about, uh, yes, as you say, about 15, 20 maybe. But for my only Spanish courses, it's even less. It's, yeah. it's a very limited number. We really like to um, have more students because teachers are needed. And uh, they all are able to have a, a very nice job after uh, finishing the career. Yeah. But that's what it is like now. Very small numbers. 
it makes me wonder sometimes what it means to talk about higher education when we have, you know, two people um, teaching such different types of courses, such different groups of individuals, different types of skills, different experiences. Uh, but to go into the topic of future of education, is it online? Is it offline? What will it be like? I, I, I suppose I want to mirror what Mark was saying that um, also for me, the, the number of questions, the, the, um, the amount of interaction that was possible, natural, organic, easy interaction that uh, happened during the fully online course was really beautiful to see. And I appreciated knowing students' names because they were in front of me in the, in the Blackboard Collaborate stream. And yet I missed being able to be in the same room as they are uh, to, as Michelle says, to, to look at the behavior, not just the, the knowledge or the transmission of uh, information, perhaps. Um, do you see any possibility for, for um, combining these two modes? I've always appreciated the, the uh, online chat room feel of Blackboard Collaborate, and I, I miss that when I'm teaching live, but I certainly prefer teaching live. Michelle, I see. Well, I think there are possibilities uh, to, to mix the two kinds of, of teaching. Because um, when, it's, when it's about knowledge uh, and students are preparing well before the, the classroom, uh, we love to see flipped classrooms, for example. That, 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 that's, that's quite good. But then again, in, in my field, it's about behavior. They have to learn how to act, how to do, how to present themselves, how to ask questions, how to give information. It's all about behavior. And uh, also when they are in the schools doing their practices, um, the, the teachers of didactics go to, to observe our students. And that's also about uh, ICALT. Um, it's called ICALT, ICALT. Uh, observation um, means to see how they develop in that sense. And, and that's very difficult and very limited if it's online. So for our kind of education, it's very important to, to be able to go on doing it live. I, I, I can also imagine a kind of a, a mixture of the two modes, actually for my course, the biopsychology course. And it's kind of a thing that I've been thinking about quite for some years now, where it would be awesome, I think, if I would be able to give the lectures to the students without requiring much time investment, but then spend a t part of the time that I have for teaching the course actually having smaller group meetings with students who are interested in attending those meetings. And I, I can sort of imagine two kinds of meetings there. There will be students having 300 students in, in a first year psychology course on biopsychology. Basically means there will be students who are struggling, right? Who have difficulty understanding the topics. But there, will, there are also lots of students who are really engaged with the materials and really uh, interested in discussing the topics in the book. And so having kind of a mixture between doing the lectures or having them available in video lectures online, while at the same time spending my time uh, for the meetings with smaller groups of students to actually be able to interact more naturally with them, I think that would be an ideal situation. And kind of hoping for the year where all my video lectures are perfect. So I have them available for the remaining years, for years to come. And then maybe I can transition to this mode of teaching where I'm actually able to engage with smaller groups of students um, and at the same time still have my lectures available for all the students. Judging from what you said earlier, that in the last 14 years, every year you seem to have 
developed your your interaction with the material and this course do you think it's ever going to happen that you're going to be perfectly satisfied with the recordings I, I don't think so, actually. Um, so the start of preparing a course each year for me is going back and reading the book again and again and again. And basically each time I read the book, I'll have new ideas about what I'll do in my lecture. So basically the, the slides are new each year, revised each year. And also the, when I look back at the slides I used the year before or a video recording of myself giving a lecture, I tend not to like what I'm doing. So I will try to improve the year again. Yeah, I feel the same way. I love to hear that because... Reflection is quite important. And when you finish your lectures and you look back and then it's always very important to, uh, to see what went well, what could be better, what sources you use and how the interaction with the students is, and then you improve. And if that's a, a continuing process, it's lovely because every, every time you make it better and you never uh, get bored because it, 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 it's, it's so nice to be developing the quality of your, uh, of what you're teaching. Uh, also necessary, I must confess, because if I don't do it and go back and start from scratch again with preparing a lecture, I tend to kind of forget things in my lecture slides and I'll not be as fluent and smooth in presenting a lecture. So it's really the uh, excitement of uh, finding out new things about the materials that I'm teaching that allows me to be, I guess, uh, excited about what I'm doing uh, in the lectures. Yeah. So can I ask you about your uh, preparation routine, Mark? So you've got, what is it, today is Friday, so tomorrow there can't be a lecture, although um, there might at some point. Let's say that you have a lecture Tuesday morning and it's it's Monday. How do you prepare for Tuesday? Give us an idea of what your preparation routine is. <clears throat> well, that that's a, a rather painful uh, subject, I would say, <laughs> in my case. And, and I think I'm a really bad example. Um, uh, if we tell our students not to procrastinate, uh, this is going to be an answer they shouldn't be hearing, I think, because I tend to procrastinate in, in the work I do. And I typically spend the day before a lecture until maybe four or five in the morning preparing my lecture slides. And I've had occasions where I didn't sleep and just went straight into the 9 a.m. lecture, uh, having prepared the lecture overnight. So... This tends to be uh, not the exemplar behavior that you would like to see, I think. Uh, maybe this is productive procrastination, however. Maybe it's the it's the positive kind of procrastination that really There, really there needs to be a certain level that. of adrenaline before I start <laughs> actually preparing a lecture. And I think that's part of the, uh, the reason why this happens. Yeah. Um, we've talked a bit about uh, reflections and the importance of that in teaching. Perhaps we can kind of get into teaching as nominees for best practice what really teaching means to you personally. Um, maybe you can pick up here, Michelle, and just talk to us. Of course, yeah, as Tasa said, you're in a field that involves teacher education that is very meta in this sense. What does it really mean to you to be a good teacher? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a very important question, and I could be speaking hours about that. Um, but but I'll try to, to, to say something about it in, in, in not so many words. Being a good teacher, uh, I think the first first thing is um, being inspiring for other other people because they are learning and um, it's it's a complicated process. It's not only uh, making them um, um, make it to make it possible to 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 learn in in the sense of knowledge, but it's much more than that. It's motivation also. And when I'm talking about the teacher education, it's a very important process for our students because they are changing 
from a pupil into a teacher. And that's, psychological speaking, um, a big change. Uh, at the first steps, in the first steps, they they look as pupils, as, as students, uh, but they get through this change of being the teacher and um, have to make the decision for their for, for their group. That's that's a very important process and a difficult process at times. So the teachers who are working with them have to help, and uh, I think that's very important that a teacher is helping the students to develop in the way they should and they would. Mark. <clears throat> Well, I guess, yeah, part of the answer in my case is I'm also quite heavily involved in a research master program we're organizing here in Groningen, the uh, Behavioral and Cognitive Neurosciences Research Master. And this is a, a selective program in which only, well, students with the best grades and the best motivation are selected for admission. And it trains these students to become researchers in the, one of the many fields of neuroscience research. And I guess <clears throat> over the years from teaching the biopsychology course, which is in a way uh, covering all the subjects of BCN in the first year to first year psychology students and having been in the BCN program as well for many years, I've seen many students who took the biopsychology course, got inspired and decided at some point to join the BCN research master. And I always feel like this is kind of a big responsibility I have to make sure that these first year students are excited about the subjects and excited about the field of neuroscience research. And so having seen so many excellent students that end up in the BCN Research Master, uh, knowing that you are teaching your first year biopsychology course also for these students, right? They are there, the next generation of excellent researchers who will subsequently eventually maybe join the BCN program. I guess that that is kind of a, a big part of my motivation in, in trying to make sure the course is taught the best possible way. Adam, I'm going to flip the question right back at you. You're at, uh, you're what, uh, two, three months away from finishing your bachelor program here in Groningen. What is good teaching to you? It's a good question. And I think my opinion on it has changed over the years. A bit of a backstory, I've, I've previously done a degree in engineering before starting my bachelor's of psychology. So I've been in a, uh, a student role for quite some time now, for eight years, and I've seen not only the way that it has to be taught in psychology, but the way that other disciplines can teach and can impart education upon students. For me, it comes down to this reevaluation, I would say, of rethinking, okay, is this the best way I can do it? And you really notice that, I think, with regard to the pandemic. I think there was very, I think the, for the most part, the teachers that were um, involved in the online education through my second year, they really took the opportunity to think, okay, well, is there actually a better way to do this? Um, is there some more engaging way, a more engaging method that I can I can use this opportunity. And then there was also uh, on rare occasions the, okay, well, I'm just going to copy and paste what I was doing before this and I'm just going to put it on. And there wasn't, I, I, I felt personally that there wasn't so much reevaluation and especially in a novel situation that it was completely new and it demanded in many ways, a different type of teaching and a different type of education. For me, I think it comes down to engagement as well. Engagement is a massive subject, something that was talked about on the previous episode of this podcast um, in episode three. Uh, but it, I think especially in this digital world, 
something that I connect with deeply is that hey, there's so many ways to distract yourself. In you know, of course, even in an in-person lecture, these lecture halls for our our faculty are quite large, and you don't when you're in the midst of 100 students sitting in a lecture hall, and you can find that place even at the back or even at the front, and it's very easy to get distracted by someone talking to you, by checking your phone if you're writing notes on your laptop, to flick quickly to a WhatsApp or something like this, and so engagement is massive. It's also a Incredible challenge, I can imagine, for teachers. You're talking about student engagement, I exactly. take it here. But um, I think one of the topics that we also talked about in the previous episode in in trying to answer this question, how do we have engaged students or activated students, as, um, as you said earlier, Michelle? One of the things that uh, is uh, clear also from the nominations that you've received is that I think it's a prerequisite is to have an engaged teacher. And we we rarely really talk about this. Mark, you talked about the fact that um, um, you you really changed and you flipped the, the nature of your course to its head last year because of the pandemic, that you respond a lot to student feedback and student requests, that you, even the very fact that you work until so late in the evening before the lecture, I take that to be... Um, um, uh, uh, evidence of somebody who is really devoted and engaged with the material and the people that they're they're teaching and i think this is um this is often a topic that uh remains untouched when we talk about engagement in a classroom the engagement of the teacher michelle you teach teachers this is uh, exactly the kind of topic that you're interested in yes i really really i'm i'm very interested in this in this topic because when we teach uh, in a secondary school or in other kinds of education. Um, it's not about, in, in my case, only about language. It's also about culture. And this intercultural awareness and being aware of our own culture and combining it with the culture of the language we study, um, that's a very interesting uh, topic. And for Spanish, it's, it's quite a large part of the world. It's not only Spain, it's also South America. And um, when we think of our, our pupils in the schools that maybe later on will also study a language and uh, have a university career in, in, in whatever kind they want, it's very important to, to be able to treat with other cultures. And also the cultures in the classroom are not one of a kind. When we are in a, in, a, in a school in Holland, well, in the north, maybe it's a bit less, but in the rest of the, of the country, there are many, many different cultures re- represented in our classrooms. And it's a challenge to deal with that. So I think the role of the teacher and also my own role is to... to um, I don't find the word to 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 say it. Um, well, the role of the teacher is to to activate students and pupils to be aware of differences and also to try to uh, level out differences. So that's again behavior because uh, that's what happens when you go to another culture, to another country, and you have to to work with um, people from other cultures. That's um, the most important thing, not only communication in the language, but also the culture. All this talk about um, activation, engagement, and different cultures, it makes me, uh, I must uh, remind myself of this 
a friend of mine that is doing was doing a master's and a PhD here at the in a different faculty, but here at the University of Groningen, who is from Mexico. And we were talking about education uh, at one point, and he said one of the biggest differences that he said he found when he did his bachelor's in Mexico in comparison to coming here to a Dutch university was the lecture. And he said to me that in Mexico, the lecture is a performance that the professor is, is putting on this show and there's energy and there's passion. And he was very taken aback by um, the style here in the Netherlands of that. And it gave me a lot to think about in just the ways that different cultures, uh, as you mentioned here, uh, these cultural differences, what people might need uh, when they're coming from a specific background. I have learned a lot about this because during some six years, I was involved in a, a, a master called Multielle. This was an international um, master Mundus. So it was organized by, by Brussels and uh, this university was engaged and I was the director of the program of Groningen. And we were working together with Spanish universities, um, Reykjavik, uh, Germany, uh, Berlin. And then we had a whole field of, of um, participants uh, in the rest of the world. Uh, well, I'm not going to mention all of them because then, then it takes a long time. But our students came from all over the world. World. We had students from Jamaica, from Egypt, from Ukraine. I'm in contact now with two girls who did this master here and they are back in Ukraine and in, in a difficult situation. But anyway, this, this multi-ele um, master taught me that um, reuniting people in a classroom from different cultures gives you another perspective of our own Dutch way of treating uh, students in class and in school. They were practicing also in the proficiency of language of Spanish in the first year courses of uh, language, uh, European languages. And it was amazing to see how they, how they behaved and how they learned and uh, how they uh, finally got a broader uh, view of teaching in this northern part of Europe. It, it was really amazing to, to be able to, to work in that. It's a pity that we had to finish the program because it was too expensive. It was a two-year program and all the students had to live two, year, two, two years uh, away in other countries. And uh, when the funding from Brussels stopped, it wasn't uh, doable to, to get on. But it was uh, amazing, this, uh, this experience. Very nice. Yeah. Well, I, I guess you're talking about <clears throat> students of different cultures. And I guess in a way it relates maybe, well, not exactly, but uh, what I'm always kind of mindful when I'm uh, preparing a course or teaching a course is also the fact that, especially with the first year course again, um, the, the level of the students might also be different. And their ability to understand something depends on how I explain it and that you need to kind of connect to, I, I would like to connect to the students of the different levels in the teaching that I do. So in the lectures that I give. And so in a way, I, I really try to imagine who are the students in front of me while preparing the lecture and kind of trying to target um, with the choice of subjects, the choice of examples, uh, the things that the students can relate to in a general sense. So um, that, that might also relate to this point about engagement 
of trying maybe not so much the, the teacher engagement, but in yeah, trying to engage the students, of learning. you need to kind of connect to the, the life and the, the experiences of the students as well, I think. With a course as big as yours in the first year, Mark, how do you, do you have any, any advice for somebody on how to pick up on the experiences in the background of so many students? Do you, do you have any advice? <clears throat> Um, well, I, I guess trying to talk to students would help, right? Um, so one of the things I did in the uh, course last year was, except for the uh, the online lectures, which were these kinds of massive uh, online events, uh, I also organized smaller scale meetings in Gattertown, which I, I really like as a, a virtual way of uh, meeting people and actually having quite naturalistic characteristics to the interactions you can get with the students. And from having these meetings again, did, not all students were there, obviously. There's 300 students in the course. There could be 25 students at most in the Gathertown meetings. But it would have multiple sessions where students could join. Um, and this really gave me an opportunity to, well, hear what the students were thinking. And so hearing their questions really allows you to understand better the, the points at which they have difficulties in understanding your materials. And again, I think the, yeah, the, the online mode of teaching as well, uh, including the uh, Blackboard Collaborate chat option to ask questions, but also these uh, Gathertown meetings really, I think, brought me as close as I ever was to understanding and knowing what the students were thinking and understanding about the, uh, the course. Let's hover there for a second, because this is the first time I've heard about Gathertown. Maybe you could kind of explain for uh, people that may be <laughs> unaware, like me listening, uh, what Gathertown actually is. Well, it's kind of a, an environment where, you, well, you can choose different environments. So you can kind of uh, select like a bar environment or a classroom. This is an online environment. I'll an just online jump environment. In. Yeah, no. yeah, just to clarify. We don't go to the bar with the students that often. But it's uh, kind of where you select an environment. And it is an environment where you can have tables, uh, meeting places. And it's basically you have a little avatar that is walking around that is you. And with this avatar, whenever you run close to someone, you'll get to see that person's face. The video connection will turn on and the audio will turn on as well. So it's really a kind of lifelike experience where, <clears throat> for instance, you're walking around a room, you'll run into people and you get to see them, you get to hear them and you get to chat with them. And so we had these, uh, well, Gathertown sessions as part of this course. And I, I guess I was introduced to Gathertown when we had a, a symposium organized for the uh, BCN uh, Research School, where they also organized a conference in Gathertown. And it was, uh, I think, a really nice uh, well introduction to Gathertown for me, because it was really, again, lifelike, like you are walking around a conference site where you're going to stand next to a poster, you'll see the person presenting the poster, but also the other people who are attending the same poster. And it really gave a nice uh, kind of lifelike feel to the online uh, well, virtual meetings that you were having with the, uh, with the students and the, uh, well, in that case, the uh, colleagues as well. I, I would like to ask a related question that's maybe a bit different than Gathertown, but uh, is somewhat related is we were talking a bit about getting feedback from students and incorporating it into your teaching experience and improving your teaching experience. To what extent are, is there feedback between teachers, uh, especially in the last years in this more novel environment? To what extent uh, is there someone asking, Mark, ah, could you explain me about Gathertown? Maybe I can incorporate that into my course. Uh, have you learned stuff from teachers in your, in your department? Maybe you could uh, pick up here on that, Michelle. Yes, well, we have a lot of communication uh, between teachers, between the different um, educators, and um, everybody has its own specialty, so we learn from each other. 
Uh, and also in this, this faculty, um, when I'm talking about teaching languages and ELC, European Languages and Cultures, nowadays, there is a lot of gathering uh, online also, and um, they also are making a, a, a set of, of data that other people can use, uh, uh, really a bank of ideas. And um, one of the most um, beautiful things is uh, what what they are developing in, in games, um, uh, I'm almost saying that the, the Spanish word, gamificación del lenguaje, yeah, del de la, de la aprendizaje del lenguaje. Well, that, that's um, that's quite useful. And um, some of my colleagues here in this faculty have made uh, enormous steps in that. And also they are relating a lot with other countries, with other students, so that our students here can really learn life online uh, having tasks with students being in Spain or in other parts of South America. So that's not um, so related to the students um, that are being a teacher, but in the other processes of learning the language. It's it's beautiful and very, very important to uh, to be engaged that way. Also for the motivation, it's, it's quite beautiful. So, yeah, I guess... Uh in terms of the uh, question of how how much interaction is there amongst the the, the teachers of a program, I, I think, well, my experience with the psychology program is that it's quite limited. So there are semester evaluation meetings where the uh, teachers, of course, is within a semester of a certain year will get together and uh, there will be representatives of the uh, student uh, board there as well to talk about their experiences in the courses. But these meetings are not well attended. Um, so it's not really working well, I think. Um, and I would say with regard to biopsychology last year, what I did in preparing the course is I contacted uh, Mandy van der Gaag and Catherine Strube, who were teaching the courses in Block 2A with the same students. And I basically asked them what they were doing to find out what, what methods they were using. And actually, uh, <clears throat> I, I ended up adopting some of the methods that they were using, uh, which involved, for instance trying to get the students to provide the subjects for the lectures, which I, I thought was a really cool idea. Unfortunately, given my procrastination and my uh, difficulties in preparing lectures, it didn't quite work out. So it ended up not being that they, well, my idea was on the Monday lectures, students could uh, submit the subjects that they would like me to cover in the Friday lecture. So I would basically be on-demand kind of lecturing. Um, that didn't quite work out given time constraints, but then uh, as a substitute for that, I created a Google Doc where students could write in, down their questions. And then insofar as the questions would be related to later lectures, I would be covering the questions in the lectures. But I guess the, the, the answer to the question is uh, I, I took the initiative myself to contact other teachers to see what they were doing. Uh, at the same time, I guess the uh, the, the resource I, I made use of a lot is the Nestor page, uh, where there was a lot of information about how uh, people were dealing with online education. And so I was basically shopping around the, the Nestor page, but also colleagues who are teaching in the same year uh, to see what they were doing and kind of gathering ideas for that could be of use in my own course. But I, I guess my point in this is it was really my own initiative in contacting the other teachers where I think it would be nice if we kind of have more interaction amongst the teachers of the psychology program so that we not only know about the course that we are teaching ourselves, but also know what place does this course have in the entire curriculum, right? I'm teaching biopsychology covering certain subjects that might be covered in a later course in the third year or second year. 
And it would be good for me to know what the other courses are doing and vice versa for them to know what I'm doing. So we can kind of create a learning line as we go along through the curriculum. And so I think that that is something that could be improved a bit more, I think, uh, for our program. Mark, I think um, to pick up from what you're saying, I think you're referring to the BSS learning community on Nestor. That's a that's a page that was indeed set up in the first couple of weeks of the pandemic for exactly this purpose, to exchange information, uh, exchange uh, knowledge, uh, practices, and any kind of, and in any way, improve connectivity between teachers within the faculty and provide support to people who were trying to solve essentially the same problems as each other at very critical times. But also to add to this, the Teaching Academy Hörningen, um, who is uh, organizing this year's education festival, I think the first education festival um, in this particular incarnation and who are in charge of this best practice, uh, best teaching and learning practice uh, award for which you are here, uh, is is a way to facilitate this kind of exchange of experiences, uh, improve communication between teachers. Um, and I think for that, we should be, we should be very happy that there is some kind of movement forward. And it's, uh, it's interesting that you've both talked about practices. You've talked about gather town, you've talked about different ways in which you can, uh, think about structuring your education, Michelle, the same for you, because this is in this new incarnation, this teaching award is what we call the best practice and, uh, in, in teaching award. And, um, uh, previously just to provide some background, the award used to be called teacher of the year. I know Mark, you have, uh, won that in the past, Michelle, I don't know if, um, if you have any experience with this before, but, uh, before it used to be called teacher of the year and the award was sort of, um, its focus was on the individual rather than the teaching practice. And now we've sort of slowly started moving towards talking about teaching practices. But one of the first things that, um, I wondered about this and having read your nomination letters is to what extent it's possible to distinguish and de- uh, untangle the person from the practice is, is, is bias psychology with all the practices that you have the same with Tassos as the teacher, as opposed to Mark as the teacher, or will it be a completely different animal? And the same for you, Michelle. Um, we talked about practice, but again, looking at the nomination letters, all of the, uh, feedback, all of the quotes that I've seen talk about you both as individuals who are engaged, who are committed, who are interested, who are passionate, who are giving all of these characteristics and much less so about the, the minutia or the, the structure of a course, which seems to follow from the person rather than that. I wondered your, what your opinion on this is. Michelle, maybe I can start with you. Yes. Well, first I'd like to talk a bit about, um, the teacher education and languages because there are other departments, but well, I'll talk about uh, what we do in languages. Um, I think it's very important that we take into account the learning, the, the learning or teaching goals. Um, when we think about that and discuss about what a future teach, teacher needs to know and to be able to, um, it's possible to develop um, a program that is based on what we all think uh, is necessary. And then another point is the evaluation of the goals. It's very important to find out if we really test what we want to test. 
to be able to say you're um, um, you've done well and you can make the next step or uh, still you, you have to learn other things. So goals and evaluation, reflecting on them is very important. And that's what we do with each other. Um, we have a, a complete list of teaching goals and we try to dedicate ourselves to uh, cover them. I think that's one of the most important things and that's not the person, that's the system. And then um, when I talk about teaching Spanish, what we do in the Faculty of Arts, something um, more or less the same is happening here. Also here we are teaching, um, we're talking about teaching goals and it's very important to give our students a proficiency that's quite high. And it's difficult now because the bachelor programs are quite general and we are losing time and uh, dedication to really the, the language in itself. So uh, teachers also are being together to always look for the, the better way to do more in less time. And again, teaching goals and evaluation of that is, um, is the basis of what it's uh, grounded on. I mean, well, I think this is an answer. No, it's a great answer. Thank you, Mike. Well, I, I guess, yeah, so a teacher will always bring his or her personality into the teaching, I think. So that is part of what you were saying. At the same time, I do think there are certain things that are kind of basics of good practices in teaching. Uh, for instance, um, when it comes to, well, in the course I taught last year, we had a, a, an exam with open questions. It was an open book exam. It was my first time using this format of an exam. And so one of the things that I've learned or understood about teaching is transparency is really important. So students need to be able to appreciate and understand why they are getting a certain number of points for an answer that they gave to a question. And the way I approach this is we basically, well, we had our exam questions, we had developed our answer models, which we had in mind a priori to think these are the good answers. And as it turns out, if you do an open book exam, well, students will use any kinds of sources they can find online and the answers might not be exactly what you predicted. And so we started adapting the answer key to the answers that students had given. And uh, basically, as we went along, uh, assigning points to answers that we didn't think initially would be correct, but turned out to be correct, actually, if you look uh, a bit more deeper into the literature. And I guess the part of the, the practice that I, I followed there was to make all these documents available to the students so they could actually see what the exam questions were, what the answer models were, but also all the adaptations to the answer models that we eventually uh, decided about. And so I think, again, transparency matters to students, right? They, they would like to see um, the reasons why they are getting a certain grade and, and why a certain answer on an exam is given so or so many points. And so transparency is important, I think, but also, again, trying to engage the students in the, uh, the topics that you teach about and seeing where their interests lie and where their levels of understanding are uh, to make sure that your lecture is connecting to those interests and those uh, levels of understanding. And so I think those things are detachable from me as a person, um, but it takes time and effort. And maybe that is a personal thing that that is involved in teaching as well. Um, it's the dedication that you have to making sure that your teaching is uh, well the, be the best possible teaching you can do. Yeah, interested been about there about evaluation and uh, engagement. Of course, once again, a theme. Um, 
Let's talk a bit about the evaluation response rate. I'm not sure what it would be the case in your department. I could imagine that maybe it's a bit higher because of small groups. However, in psychology, I think it's no secret that the evaluation response rate for courses is quite low, at least through the official form in the way it's set up. Uh, is there any way that we can improve this or is there alternative methods that you're employing, Mark, for example, to try and get at a sense of what's working for students and what's not working? Um, <clears throat> well, actually, I, I made use of Mentimeter, which is another online uh, well, uh, option you have where you can quickly do a poll amongst the students. And so I set out polls uh, regularly throughout the course to ask the students opinion about, well, for instance, about the exam. So how difficult did you think the exam was? How well did you think you do? Um, and asking them all kinds of questions. So I would get the feedback basically during the course already and not just, uh, well, at the end of the course with the official evaluation. And I guess I would think that even with the eva evaluation at the end of the course, the uh, response rate from the students in this course was quite good. I think about a third or so of all the students filled in the uh, evaluation. However, I, I gave, I, I really tried to get them to perform the evaluation. And I guess I made a little joke out, out of it because uh, a colleague of mine, Sebastian Matteau, is teaching a course, uh, Introduction to Psychology, as the first course that the uh, students get. And he kind of has a running gag about me throughout the course. So he brings up my picture and he calls me question mark. And it comes up at the end of each lecture where students get to ask questions. And then uh, for some reason, he had me in these uh, slides there. Uh, I think I was part of the first yeah, adaptation of, of those, uh, uh, right, yeah, right, the right, first so. year or the, the birth of question mark. <laughs> exactly. And I've been having this kind of discussion with Sebastian about who's the best teacher of the year and just making jokes about it. So I really brought it to the students to say, well, you know, you had this course introduction to psychology with Sebastian. I know Sebastian is really trying to be teacher of the year, but I thought I did a better job. So make sure you fill in those evaluations and make sure I get this prize this year. So, yeah. And that might have helped to uh, get a good response rate as well. Taking on from what you were talking about, the, the little competition between you and Sebastian about teacher of the year and um, and as celebration of good practice, good teaching and good teachers. Um, I'd like to, to find a, a close to our discussion by asking you to give some advice, perhaps um, advice either to your younger selves, what kind of advice you would have given to your younger selves after all of this experience that you've had all these years. Uh, Michelle, perhaps this is particularly important for you because as you've told me on the way up here, uh, this is your last month um, of active work at the Ruch before you retire uh, or advice to a fellow teacher on how to uh, think about improving their teaching or their engagement with their teaching or even perhaps advice to students on how to improve their own learning experiences. Michelle, I'll, I'll start with you. Thank you. Well, first, when I'm talking to myself and my younger self, I would say, don't be ever afraid to be bored. Because teaching uh, is engaging throughout your whole life. And I can say that now because my first job was in 82. <laughs> and now we're in 22. So uh, that's one, one thing I wanted to say. And then uh, advice to, to, to me when I was young, but also to my younger colleagues and future colleagues, uh, future teachers, I would say, Try to have an open mind always. That's, that's very important. Um, and be interested in the culture of your language. This is for language teachers, of course. 
Because if you're not interested and if you're not a specialist in what the culture brings you, it's impossible to be a motivating teacher. Um, well, I wrote down some points because I think this is a, is a very important question. Uh, what, what's the advice to future, future teachers? Um, take into account your teaching goals. That's what, what I uh, mentioned earlier, uh, the learning goals for the, for the students and reflect on them. Then beware of improvement, but it doesn't have to be big steps. You can make very small steps and it doesn't have to be right, all of it. Um, we're not perfect. So when you're open for improvement, that's beautiful. And it's uh, uh, allow yourself to make mistakes so that you can do it better some other time. Um, Take room to explore, take room to discuss views. Uh, so it's all about communication with teachers, with colleagues, with students, with pupils, with your environment. Because uh, being a teacher is not only your work, it's also um, in that sense, uh, maybe um, defining you as a person. And I don't mean that we have to be teachers who know it better as I, than other people. No, it's it's a way of uh, looking at the world around you. Thank you, Michelle. Mark. Well, well, I have little to add to that. Um, I, I guess I, I was thinking, but you already referred to this, exploring uh, in your teaching. And I think I, I, as a researcher, we, we tend to be creative. We tend to come up with new ideas for how things might be, come up with new ideas for studies. And I think you can actually do the same thing in teaching, right? You can come up with a new idea for let's try this and let's try that and, and try to see what works best. And that is what I really enjoy about teaching. And maybe also why I keep changing things that I do in my course is that I'll, I'll try new things. And I, I really find it exciting to see how those things work out. And some things work out and some things work out more poorly. But again, it's, it's kind of this experimenting that you do as a teacher that, that I also really enjoy. And so not to be afraid to experiment maybe in, in teaching and to try to find out what works best uh, for the specific course that you're teaching and the, the population of students that you are teaching for. Um, so, so that is one thing. And the other thing I can relate to very closely uh, is your, your point about teaching goals and learning goals. And so one of the things that I became very aware about uh, in switching to the open book exam for my course last year was that students had, I needed to tell the students what they could expect on the exam. And this really required that I thought in advance of creating the exam questions of what are the things that I would like to see my students understand from the subjects that they've read about in the uh, book. And so really forcing myself to be very explicit about learning goals. So I made big documents with stating all the learning goals for each chapter, uh, providing them to the students so they knew a bit what to expect. And to also kind of tailor the exam questions to those learning goals that I formulated which I think is kind of what you learn about when you do your university teaching qualification, but it might not be something that we actually do a lot in practice, but it is really valuable, I think, and it really helps the students to see what is asked from them, what, what is expected from them, and it really allows you to kind of well, uh, specify your lectures in a way that you really make sure that, that those learning goals are actually well, explained clearly uh, and the materials are covered clearly in your lectures. Um, so, yeah, I, I guess those are two points of advice. And, and the third point may, may be, I, I'm not sure if I should be saying this, but 
I, I sometimes get the impression that some teachers think of teaching as a bit of a nuisance. They would much rather spend their time doing research. So we all like to do research, but I, I think it's really important to bear in mind that the fact that we have so many students is the reason why I think you are getting your big salary paid every month. Right. So bear in mind that, that we are teaching, we are researchers at the same time, but the responsibility of doing good teaching, I think, comes with the fact that it is your job. And, and I think that is something you should be mindful of um, in, in kind of looking at how much time you invest in your teaching and how much dedication you have to your teaching as well. Well, I'd like to add that when you talk about teaching, it also can be based on research because uh, education is also a research field and we can learn a lot of what other people have experienced and uh, uh, researched about. And so when we try to find out the best way, it's not only uh, intuitive, it's also based on research. And that's quite important to say because we are we are in university and um, we dedicate ourselves to that also. Well, I think we've come full circle talking about evidence-based teaching practice. Uh, Mark Neuvenstein, Michelle de Jong, thank you very much for joining us today. It's um, it's wonderful to share this hour with you and learn more about your your practice, about your 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 spirit, your ethos in in uh, teaching and in learning. Congratulations again on your nominations, uh, Callum. Yeah, um, happy to be part of this first episode. Uh, oh, yes, for me welcome and to you as well. This is your first uh, degrees <laughs> yeah. of freedom episode. No, it was a, it was really nice to hear you guys speak so passionately about teaching. And uh, once again, congratulations to being nominees. Uh, I think one thing I would like to highlight is uh, just that this is actually part one of a two part episode. So we are um, planning on also interviewing two other nominees from the faculty of uh, behavioral sciences and so next episode uh, or the next part of this episode we'll be interviewing Rosamrein uh, van der Ploeg, Gijs uh, Houtzen and Tina Kretschmer and we'll be discussing them hopefully incorporating somewhat of what you guys have said to us today and asking them to expand on what teaching is in their specific departments. And I want to, wanted to say a big thank you to you to uh, organize it, this and to do it the way we did it. Uh, I'm so happy that one of the smallest um, programs is able to, to represent itself because within the, the, the Faculty of Behavioral Sciences, our teacher education is a bit apart sometimes. And it's so beautiful to be uh, able to rep represent ourselves and... Uh, Give it a voice. Thank you for that. Thank you. Stay tuned for part two. This podcast was a production of the University of Groningen.